50% of what we do is this constant fear that has been infused in us from the beginning of time that this is America and people sue you and so therefore this is our practice style. I think it's a misreading of the law, but then again, that happens all the time. If you're not happy, we're not happy. I don't know what's worst, plavix, bleedix as we call it, or cumin. We are not WikiLeaks, and we're not telling everybody everything. I think to say that they have to go see a neurologist is insane. I don't even know what cerebral rest is. It's basically watch SpongeBob. Nothing says Christmas like a cheery lawsuit this time of year. Hello, boys and girls. Rick Picard, Mel Herbert, and Greg Henry coming to you with the December issue of Risk Management Monthly. Gentlemen, we are on Skype. How are you today? I'm full of the Christmas spirit, Rick. Can't wait to get going. Nothing says Christmas like a cheery lawsuit this time of year. And Melvis? I am very happy, loving life here in Southern California. I know I shouldn't do this, but it's about 75 degrees. The sun is out. The birds are chirping. The women are wearing their skirts. The men are wearing their T-shirts. It's a beautiful day in Southern California. Yeah, yeah. Rub it in. (laughs) Just understand this. You guys in taco land out there don't have the true spirit of Christmas here in Michigan. It's 21 degrees. We're freezing our nanos off. And we're keeping the chestnuts roasting just to keep us warm. So enough from you California raisins, okay? My chestnuts are roasted, but it's from the solar radiation because it's so warm. Yeah, I understand that. Mm All righty. In the past, we have kind of had a problem in that we always relegated the letters to the end and never did them. So what we'd like to do this month is letters first. Then we have a couple of articles. Then we have the theme of the issue, which is trauma cases that will get you into trouble. And we'll see how it goes there doing this whole thing backwards. So letters. Actually, they're not letters. They're emails. We don't get letters. You understand. Do you remember letters? We get letters. Of letters. letters. Yeah, that was from the old Perry Como show. Yes, it was. So here you go. Michael Frank, you remember, Michael, he did a nice interview with us. He is the MDJD. He's at EMP in Canton, Ohio. He is their legal department or at least part of their legal department. Well, he responded to something that we did in October. And if I could, he made a couple of points. Number one, the idea that it is illegal to adjust or discount bills in response to complaints over risk management reasons is right up there with the myth that insurance companies will not pay any part of your bill if you leave AMA. Now, honestly, I don't think we said that that was the case. In fact, I know that that's not the case, and you know that's not the case, Mel and Greg. So it's kind of like I'm not quite sure. We weren't asserting that you can't reduce bills that are getting to be problematic in terms of bad outcome. And the phraseology I like to use is, if you're not happy, we're not happy. I would agree with that. By the way, Mike Frank's a good friend, and he and I have done some presentations together. So hi, Michael, and I think he's right about this. He's also right about the fact that the AMA stuff is a myth. This is probably a myth. But as a general way of doing business, understand why you're discounting bills. He goes on in his email to mention the fact that he doesn't think that most plaintiff's attorneys ever utilize this stuff in deciding whether you thought you'd done something wrong. And I guess I'd have to agree with him. I don't think this is alleged, or I've never seen it alleged in the cases I've dealt with. But as a business practice, if people really aren't happy and as you investigate it, there were some personal interaction things, I don't mind writing off the bill. Well, I'm kind of of the view that you have to be an absolute nut not to make an adjustment where it appears to be warranted. 
and to hold fast and say, hell no, we won't go. If I do that, it acknowledges my guilt. It's just stupid. Well, actually, in my career as the head of a department, I would write down bills, particularly when sort of good, honest folks who had no insurance, who were paying double what the insurance company was going to pay us. They'd get a bill and see what the charge was, and they thought that's what they had to send in. Well, oftentimes we would reduce it to what the insurance companies with Blue Cross Blue Shield would actually pay us for other people. These people were very happy with that. Although, you know, I think you're out on thin ice there, Chief, because your billing company will tell you that there's all kinds of rules and regulations about this and that it has to be done in certain specific ways because there's all of these regulations that say you can't get rid of co-pays. That's not allowed to be happening. And Medicare, you can't do it with them either. So it's not super straightforward, but I think your billing company can make an accommodation or arrangement for you in these cases. Well, I think what the law actually says is you can't differentially charge people. The feds say if you charge Medicare a certain amount of money, you've got to charge other people at least that amount of money. You can charge them whatever you want. It's what you accept is the question. And after all, sometimes we have to accept nothing because they send us nothing. So I think it's not what you charge. It's what you're willing to accept. And I think that's a technicality here that, that probably needs pointing out. The third thing that he mentioned in his email is, where is the evidence that when complaints are filed late, especially when they are filed after the patient is sent to collection, it means the patient is just trying to avoid paying and the complaint is not based on a bad patient experience. This is a rookie error, rookie, which betrays a flawed understanding of the natural response, which many people have to a bad patient slash consumer experience. Well, I got to say that in my limited experience of 25 years as the director of our department, I did think that there was a relationship between these very late appeals and problems with the bill. You're five months out from the incident, and this is the first time you chose to say anything about your care. So I'm not so sure, Mike, that I necessarily agree with you. And I don't know that you have data, I have data. I don't know it's good data. And I don't think this is a point where you need to go to the mat on this. It's just kind of an observation. I think Dr. Frank is making a good point, though, and that is just because they file late and just because they're also complaining about the bill doesn't mean they also didn't get poor customer service. I think I what he's warning us here is be careful of just assigning lateness and getting the bill when actually there may be some interactive questions. Kind of look at them objectively. No argument there. Greg, do you want to do the second case yeah. we have? I love this one, and we're not going to use any names on this. This is anonymous. We are not WikiLeaks, and we're not telling everybody everything. But one of our very dedicated listeners writes in and said, a patient came to the ER with a post-surgical complaint and died in the ER. I hate it when it happens. The writer of the letter notes that his colleague who was involved in the case, you notice it's always somebody's colleague, had a long discussion with him about the case. The question is this, is this discussion discoverable given if a lawsuit is filed? Well, first of all, let me just say this. This is governed to some extent by state law. If you are in the state of Nevada, these kinds of interactions are not only discoverable, but admissible at the time of trial. I've been to literally hundreds of depositions where they've asked the question, doctor, have you discussed this case with anyone else 
as soon as he's willing to talk about having a discussion, a curbside with someone, they will frequently subpoena that person and hear what they have to say about the case. Because what they're thinking is, before there's a lawsuit, you may have been tremendously honest and open about any thoughts of things going wrong or sins you may have committed. So we need to kind of keep this in mind, and the general flavor ought to be this. If something bad happens in the department and you want to talk about it, speak about it in a quality assurance meeting. Where I am in the state of Michigan, and I believe it's also in the state of California where you gentlemen are, if there is a quality assurance meeting, there's a statute which protects that discussion from both discovery and admissibility. Is that the way it is in California, Rick? I don't know, but Greg, that's really, honestly, I hate to say this, it's not very practical. The idea of there's a bad thing that happened in the department this afternoon, and in fact, I think there were a couple of points in this case. One of them, I think you addressed pretty clearly that the doctor who was writing in asked, well, because a lawsuit hasn't been filed, do I have to acknowledge talking about before it was filed? And the answer is, yes, you do. So stop talking right from the get-go or try to do it in a protected way, as you're suggesting, although... I'm not quite sure how you would do that, to be candid. Well, one thing you can do is stop talking about it there. Let your department director, who probably also chairs the quality assurance section, at least know this is happening. What you shouldn't be doing is having random conversations with nurses, techs, desk secretaries in the department, because I don't know of plaintiff's attorneys who would refrain from asking that question. Have you discussed it with anyone And if you've had a free-for-all about this, it may come back to bite you in the butt. I would just try and limit that kind of loose conversation if I could or talk about it to the correct people in the correct location. Well, the other point about this case that is even more interesting is that this was a dictated record. And the physician who was involved in the care of the patient asked his colleague, to review his dictation and give him advice on dictation of the record before he signed it. So they collaborated on the generation of this medical record, and this made the collaborator a little anxious. And I think that he probably ought to have been a little anxious. He should have been anxious, Rick, because someone is going to ask this question to the doctor. Doctor, you asked another physician to participate in the creation of this record. How often does that happen in your daily career? It's not going to be a common occurrence. Then the next question is, so, doctor, you got help because you knew this was going to be a medical legal problem because of your horrendous mistake. Answer that question, doctor. I think that that is the frightening part of this email. And, you know, I don't know how you would, assuming you're an honest person and you you don't lie well, you probably don't lie well because you're a doctor and not a lawyer, There's no way in hell you can get away with not acknowledging that you aided in constructing this chart. And I think that looks bad to a jury. Yeah, he also asked whether this was unethical. And I think that that's a lot tougher. I think that the idea of creating the best and fairest and most accurate record you can is a good thing. And I think, unfortunately, 
in the process of doing that, we're going to try to be self-serving in generating this record. We're going to emphasize the things we want to emphasize, and we're going to de-emphasize the things we want to de-emphasize in the generation of this chart. But here we have two physicians actually collaborating. One is reviewing the chart and making suggestions. I would take that out of there because this is one of those things where the doctor doesn't have to sign until they go in and make corrections, additions, and deletions. And those, it appears that they're being made at the same time as the record was initially generated. That's dangerous. What we have here is not two doctors. We have two spin doctors, and they're spinning this their way. Well, we wish these doctors good luck. It did sound like a nasty case, and it did sound like every Tom, Dick, and Harry involved in this case is going to get sued. And so the doctor who was involved with the care of the case... I think it's pretty straightforward. I think that he might have sucked in his friend here, though, to a degree that he probably ought not have. Yes, yes. And loose lips sink ships. <laughs> yes, Don't thank you. do it. Was that World War II, Greg? That yeah, that's it? World War II. Thank but you, you know much. what? That was the last good war we fought. So let's remember that. And by the way, we saved the Australians in that one. Remember that, Mel? Yes, I remember it well. I was a boy at the time. Yes, right. A mere tad, a child. Rick, let's take out the third letter. We've got some good letters this time. Well, Raj Chand wrote in from Bangor, Maine. Raj basically says, where do we stand on a newspaper article, Bangor Daily News, in which Eastern Maine Medical Center was found in violation of EMTALA by a district court jury of all people. That's not who normally determines whether you violated EMTALA. The case, a pregnant woman in labor with a dead 16-week fetus was sent home from the ED to expel the fetus at some later time. The patient delivered in her bathroom several hours later. The hospital also, given the fact that at least this jury thought this was an EMTALA violation, failed to self-report itself to federal officials, and they ultimately indicated that there would be a review by the feds of this. So it's kind of strange. A lay jury is saying an EMTALA violation has occurred, triggering the federal government to say, oh, maybe we've got to look at this. This is a little bass backwards. But in any case, what about sending a woman who is going to miscarriage home when that time is kind of like really you're not quite sure. What do you think of that? Well, bottom line, we send women home who have anticipated abortions all the time. Now, whether it is the number of weeks involved here, I think this is a misapplication of the law, and you always have to worry about unintended consequences. I mean, we don't have Bob Bitterman here on the call today, but I can't believe that this woman was informed what existed, what was going to happen. What if it hadn't happened for 12 hours? Is she going to sit there in the department? What if it happened happened for 24? I mean, I don't see that that's an abandonment of this patient in any way, shape, or form. And I think it's a misreading of the law. But then again, that happens all the time. Well, I did think it was kind of strange, but it doesn't look good, Greg, to have somebody go home and deliver in the bathroom two hours later. This woman was obviously in some degree of active labor, and that's why they pushed the Mtala button on here, because you're not allowed to mess around with active labor. The question is, viable or non-viable fetus, I don't know that it comes up in Mtala. Well, I don't know whether it comes up in Mtala either, but obviously this is not the intended use of the law or the intended consequence. I mean, it's probably, as you're pointing out, Rick, politically not the right thing to do. It certainly isn't from a human interaction and patient standpoint very good. But is it actually an Amtala violation? I think that's harsh. I think that's tough. You know, as was pointed out, 
there's only a couple of cases in the entire state of Maine for that year, 2009, and this is aberrant. I guess there were two other cases. One was a clinician who failed to adequately monitor a trauma patient and to rapidly transfer the patient to an appropriate facility. And the other case involved a failure to adequately stabilize a cardiac patient before transfer. All of these things are very close cases as far as I'm concerned. And what they're trying to do is involve an Amtala claim on what was the question of usual and regular negligence. I think it's a misapplication of the law. Well, isn't it a fantastic strategy to get yourself a nice Amtala violation documented, then take that to a lay jury for a malpractice verdict and say, look, even the government says these guys have screwed up, so I want money for my client. But I think that helps to make the compelling case. The law is not simple. It's not clear. It's complex for a reason, and that's mostly so attorneys have work to do. What they have is continuous ambiguity, and I think that it's wrong. But then again, nobody asked me to redo the laws of the United States. Raj has another question in here, though. He asked that we comment on the October 2010 position statement from the American Academy of Neurology regarding follow-up of sports-related concussions. Raj, there can't be anything which is more politically sensitive than this, because in that, the American Academy of Neurology suggested that all of these concussions be seen by a neurologist or a physician with proper training. Now, that's where the issue comes in. Who has proper training? I can remember, and I'm sure everybody else on this panel remembers, when some family practitioner or internist or pediatrician kind of looked at kids after they were hit on the field and said, yeah, you're all right to go back in. It's become much more complex than that, and I don't care which of the protocols you follow. Somebody ought to see those kids who is disinterested as to whether the team wins the state championship and, number two, understands one of these protocols out there about clearing kids to go back into the game. Well, Roger's specific question was, do I, as an emergency doctor, have to refer this concussed kid to a neurologist or some other doctor who has training in the assessment of concussions, which is basically nobody. And my answer to that was absolutely not. You can send them back to the primary care doctor and let that primary care doctor do that kind of thing. The other thing is it brings up the idea of guidelines. Do you think the vast majority of emergency physicians know the American Academy of Neurology's guidelines for the treatment of a concussion? Of course not. So the idea here is, from a medical legal perspective, can you be held as liable because you didn't follow guidelines that you were never even aware of? And I think that that's obviously you can't be. This is not the standard of care. It is an effort by the academy to try to make the care of these patients better. But from a medical legal point of view, absolutely not. Well, I think there is something that the docs ought to be aware of, though. Emergency docs ought to be aware of. There is a changing view about concussion and sending kids back to play. And to just say you've looked at them in the emergency room and find they can just go back tomorrow and they don't need any further follow-up, I would definitely refer them at least back to the family physician who I hope, if they know they're doing traumatically injured athletic kids, would at least look up one of those protocols and decide how he's going to follow that child. A lot of the sports team doctors, even at the high school level, are following these things now, and I think it's a reasonable way to go. We were sending kids back in too quickly. 
There are plenty of professional players, by the way, who are suing the National Football League for the fact that they were sent back to play too early. Yeah, there's a bunch of these guidelines. There's over 22 concussion guidelines from various bodies, the NCAA, the NFL, the neurologists, the sports medicine people. They're all different because we don't really know what to do. Just follow something. Right. And I don't think it matters which one of these guidelines. I mean, there's one that was published, I read recently, one from the Athletic Trainers of America, and they've got a modified of one of the European standards. And I don't care which one you follow. What you can't do is this. Assume the kid with a headache after he's had his head banged. If he's got no headache tomorrow, he can go back in and play. And all of them are saying this ought to be a staged question. And whether you believe it ought to be three days or five days, pick something. Just follow something because at some point in time, this could come back to bite you in the butt. Mel, what's that thing, what they call the second? Second impact syndrome? Yes. Second impact syndrome is probably bogus. Second impact syndrome is you get whacked on the head and you've still got symptoms. Then you get another relatively trivial whack on the head while you've got symptoms and you have this vasodilation, a cerebral edema syndrome and you die. There's actually only 18 reported cases of that in the world's literature. So it's probably not a good idea to get whacked in the head again while you've still got symptoms. And that's the idea of waiting until these people are completely symptom-free before you put them back in. But how often does that horrible vasogenic cerebral edema thing really occur? It's not clear. There's really not many cases. But the other thing, guys, let's look at it this way. If you're going to take one of these kids and they lie a lot, they want to get back in and play, their coach wants them back in playing, Everybody wants them back in playing. Somebody ought to be the filter there to say, you know what, let's take a look and stage this correctly. I mean, if the National Football League can now do it, maybe we ought to be suggesting that our guys do it too. But would you agree that specifically related to this question, it is not the obligation of the emergency physician to assure follow-up with a neurologist in these cases, but that if there was a family doctor that sending him back to the family doctor would be considered to be adequate and within the standard of care. I think that sending him back to the family doc or the doc who's been assigned to do the sports medicine for that particular team, I think that should be adequate reassurance for the emergency doc. He should tell the family and the athlete, you don't go back to play until you've been cleared by this doctor or that doctor so that you've at least got them in to see somebody again before they get hit in the head. Yeah, I think to say that they have to go see a neurologist is insane. Maybe that'll be true one day when the neurologist can actually do something that changes the outcome. But getting follow-up, I think, is very important. And there's a bunch of people who that could be. That could be an athletic trainer if they're training this stuff. It could be the family doc. It could be a neurologist. It could be a neurosurgeon. It could be a lot of people. So to say neurology specifically is who they should go to is self-serving BS. Yeah. That's exactly what it is, is self-serving BS. But the key is these guidelines as they're being developed, at least our members ought to be aware that they're out there and that it really is different than it was 30 or 40 years ago where if you could say your name and you remember you're playing on this team, they put them back into the game. And I don't think that's correct. You know, we just had a lecture by John Love, who used to be faculty at USC and now is the director at Balboa at the Navy Hospital there, about a concussion and the line of duty, as it were. They get very bad concussions now because the Humvees and the stuff are much more protected. So instead of dying, they have these explosions that produce very bad concussions. And we don't know yet, but 
they put these guys on a period of substantial cerebral rest, as it were, just lie in the dark for a week or so because they have such bad concussions. And then they do this graded neuropsych testing and then they get them slowly back to doing their normal activities. They think that their outcomes are much better. So although I believe the standard of care right now is just to get followed up by somebody, it might be true in the future that there'll actually be specific things we can do to make their long-term outcomes better. We have to remember that these people, even with fairly minor concussions, have real problems for weeks, months, and sometimes maybe even years. This is a form of brain injury, a minor brain injury. And so, although again, I say, I think the standard is just get them followed by somebody. One day, when we've got some data, there might be real specific recommendations based on real data about how to treat them. Melvis, I think that the one thing we need is real data and real outcome stuff, and there isn't any of that stuff at this moment in time. I don't even know what cerebral rest is. It's basically watch SpongeBob. Don't do too much math because they give themselves headaches. Even going outside, there was one gentleman there who was a physician who was in one of these Humvee explosions, and for three weeks he couldn't go outside because the photophobia was so bad. Yeah, well, Melvis, on this basis, you've been on cerebral rest for, it's been a generation now. My entire country's been on cerebral rest for two centuries. Exactly. Well, you know, if Jerry Hoffman were here, he'd say none of these guidelines are evidence-based. They are consensus documents with an effort to do the best they can, but in terms of looking at data. The other thing is on EMA, we had a letter from somebody where after a concussion, their kid who was playing video games did much worse playing video games than he did before. And over several weeks, they could see his improvement coming back to baseline in the performance of video games, which is probably a much more objective way of looking at your brain function than, well, how do you feel? Are you irritable or are you having a headache? Those kinds of things. So the next version of this will be how you do with Pong or some other game. It's funny you said it because that's exactly what the military are doing. Before they deploy you now, they get you to do this series of neuropsych testing, which is basically all done on computer and it's a sort of video game based and how quick your response time is and your memory. And then if your head gets concussed, then they do them again and they find significant reductions in your ability to play video games and do memory things. By the way, that's exactly how the Swedes, since everyone is required to go into the military in Sweden or at least be screened for the military. That's how they picked up the fact that CT scans under the age of 18 actually affected performance is they did those very broad neuropsych testings as they entered the service or service age at 18 and looked back and saw who'd had CT scans of their head. That was very interesting data and caused us to rethink a little bit about casually shooting CT scans. The next email was from Buzz Potts, who writes with some frequency. Buzz, thanks very much. This is about the question, how much does malpractice affect the cost of health care in terms of unnecessary testing and those kinds of things? And he said that there is an article in Health Affairs, which is this very snooty policy-related journal, very expensive as well, came out in September 2010, a study looking at this. And I must admit, Buzz, I'm really sorry I didn't understand it. The whole thrust of it, it was in detail and it looked at all 35 medical specialties and the long and short of it was that reducing the medical malpractice would have a very small influence on national spending. Now, this is the second paper in the EMA database that has said that when they actually objectively try to assess this, whether in fact this is the case or not. But I must personally, I got to tell you, 
I agree. I think if malpractice suits were cut in half and malpractice and premiums were cut in half, that the change in practice of American physicians would be only modestly changed in terms of ordering less, doing less. Now, wait a second. 1% of the total medical cost of the United States, 1% of $2.4 trillion, Rick, is a lot of money. That's the part I didn't understand in this paper. So I just elected to say, listen, if you're interested in this topic, go to Health and Affairs in September and you, can, <laughs> and you can read about it. But I wasn't able to interpret it appropriately. You always say this and I always disagree with you, so I'll just have to disagree with you again. And I know Jerry says the same thing, that if you're a tester, you'll be a tester whether there's a lawyer there or not. But I just don't believe that. Because I think this entire system is so perfused with the fear of malpractice that it perfuses from before you even get to the clinical areas. It's within the medical schools. It's within everywhere. It's just a part of the culture. And I think physicians in other countries don't do as many tests simply because it is not part of the culture. Fear is not as much a part of the culture. So you can say it's only 2% of what we do, but I think it's 90% of what we do. Well, maybe not 90, but 50% of what we do is this constant fear that has been infused in us from the beginning of time that this is America and people sue you. And so therefore, this is our practice style. It will probably take a few generations to get away from that after they fix malpractice laws. I don't think it'll happen the next day because it's such part of the culture, but I think we could be much more rational and do a lot less tests once we fix the culture, and that's step one. But it's a much larger culture than that, Mel, because you came from a culture where the resolution of healthcare problems was based on a global budget to think about the issue. We've never done that. The British are the ultimate in that. They've got a global budget. They have only so much money to spend, so they are invested in not doing testing for a lot of reasons. It's not just the legal situation. It's the fact that if they do one test, they can't do another. And I think that it's a broad cultural milieu, not just the narrow, oh God, I'm going to be sued thing. It's a part of it, but it's not the only part of it. Well, Mel, you made your obligatory statement. I made my obligatory statement. We basically cancel out each other every time we do this. But anyway, let's move on. We got two articles. Those of you who are EMA subscribers will have heard of these in this December as well. So we're doing a little double dipping. The first one is legal risks of curbside consults. This is by Victor Cotton, who's an MDJD, who has actually a very interesting website where he provides all kinds of resources for medical legal issues. In any case, The bottom line is basically good news. The plaintiff has to prove the existence of a doctor-patient relationship, he says, and this requires that the curbside counsel physician assume a degree of responsibility for the management of the case, which does not, in fact, occur in these cases. He notes that the courts have stipulated that these informal discussions do not establish the needed relationship, and in fact, they encourage communication between physicians. This interpretation, however, does not apply to four groups. Number one, on-call physicians to the ED who have been contacted about a specific patient. That's not a curbside consult. Physicians covering for another physician. Physicians charged with supervising residents or mid-level providers. And lastly, physicians charged with interpreting diagnostic tests, your radiologist and your cardiologist. So he says, go to it, help your colleagues, help the patients with curbside consults. Greg? You know, if you call up an infectious disease guy and say, I've got some patient here with X or Y, what are you guys using now as as the number one antibiotic? I agree with that. They shouldn't be held responsible for that problem. 
If you call up and say, your patient is in here, that's a different issue. If you're on call and have to follow up that patient, a different issue. The other thing is, if you want a curbside consult on yourself, that's a different issue too, because now a patient is presented to the doctor. You need to be very careful when you say, yeah, go ahead, get a curbside consult on this sort of thing. Because if it meets one of those criteria you mentioned, Rick, they can be sucked into the case. All right. Last paper here. Actually, Greg, it's from the University of Michigan Health System. Well, it's more than that. It's from my neighbor. Actually, the guy who runs the program at the University of Michigan is a gentleman by the name of Richard Boothman, who went from a practice of defense of physicians to take this job with the university. And this I'm sorry program or full disclosure program is the baby of Rick Boothman, who's done a great job. Unfortunately, not everything in the paper is quite the way it's presented. Go ahead, Rick. Well, this was in the Annals of Internal Medicine, August 17, 2010. It's from it's a before and after study at the University of Michigan Health System where they looked at claims and settlements and grief before they did this full disclosure business. And then afterwards, the implementation of the program included... Active surveillance for medical errors. Now, I must admit, I should have checked more carefully what active surveillance means because I can tell you, I recently heard of a place where they pay employees at the hospital and doctors to turn in errors. Now, that's very active. Number two. It's very dangerous because I could sit there making errors all day just to raise my salary. Yes, but you would draw yourself into these things as well. So It's a wash. It's a wash. Number two. They did full disclosure of errors to patients. Number three, they offered them compensation when errors were identified. And number four, they vigorously defended claims in the absence of perceived error. So they did this before and after. And basically, there's all kinds of things that they happened that they claim were better in the after period than in the before period. Paid claims per year dropped from an average of 53 to 32 Less claims resulted in lawsuits. The monthly rate of new claims decreased substantially. The mean time to resolve claims went from 1.4 years to 0.9 years. And the average cost per lawsuit, look at this, went from 405,000 to 228,000 simoles. Now, one of the things I noticed is one of the first papers that ever came out about this full disclosure thing was in the VA system in Kentucky. And they talked about how, in fact, their number of Dollars paid out went down substantially. The number of lawsuits, however, went up. But one of the issues was, well, that's a closed system. That's the federal government. You can't sue the federal government. How would Without this, their permission. How would this work in a non-governmental system? And these guys said it seemed to work pretty well. One of the things I was interested in talking to this doctor about, actually, is are all the doctors at the University of Michigan Health System, are they employees of that system? And Everyone. Well, see, that's the problem. They're all insured by the same company. What happens in my hospital where I'm insured by somebody different than the hospital, and they might not have the same point of view here? Rick, I'm going to play Jerry Hoffman for just a minute. Oh, God. <laughs> Rick, you ignorant slut. All right, here we go. The biggest problem with all of this, and again, I know these people, I've talked to them about this, is during the same time period that they use, they reference, in general, in the state of Michigan, the number of lawsuits fell just about the same amount. So it's very hard to say that this is what caused the lawsuits to fall, because if you look in the medical system in general, this happened. Secondly, when they talk about 
free disclosure, total disclosure, all that kind of stuff. They're not talking about everybody running in in the ER saying, oh, my God, I just killed your mother. They have people who've been through training and only certain people. If you think the average thoracic surgeon is allowed to go in and admit his mistake to the patient, you know what that's like. It doesn't happen. They have people who are trained to go in and speak to the families. And I think that the system is more than just telling the truth to the patient and being open. It's knowing how to tell the truth to the patient and how to get to resolution. And so they've done a lot of things here which are involved. And it's not simply going in and giving full disclosure. It's understanding how to do that. Well, you know, that's interesting that you pointed that out, Greg, because the same thing has been shown to be true here in California, where the number of lawsuits has really gone down dramatically over the last five years. And that's one of the problems with the before and after study is that sometimes what you are attributing the change to have been resulting from is really not the cause or maybe only partially the cause, because we did do I think in Risk Management Monthly, a report on just how dramatically claims have dropped in California. Well, this is the famous post-hoak, ipse propter hoke problem in law. Say what? Hey, you took Latin. Yeah, I, was a, I know you did. I was an alder boy. Just like boy. You. Yeah. I was. Yeah. In any event, just because it happened afterwards doesn't mean it's because of. And we all get into that kind of thinking, and it's dangerous. You know, I think... The paper gives us lots of good things to think about, but it's not 100%. And if you believe that you're going to put this program in in your place, do it right. Read Rick Boothman's stuff about how they implemented it, Michigan, because all university systems are complex systems. They had to really refine this to get away from you know somebody just wandering in and saying, God, we're really sorry we cut the wrong leg off sort of thing. It's more complex than that. All right, guys. So we're caught up now on our letters and our articles. And, and now it's time to get into nine high-risk areas in trauma management. Pretty significant trauma. And we're going to each take one and give you our two cents about it. The other thing is, is that, and I'm not quite sure how this is going to play out, we have cited some abstracts from this wonderful service called Emergency Medicals Abstracts to help make the point that we're trying to make here that flagrant, flagrant <laughs> self-promotion. But go ahead, Rick. Anyway, I think, Greg, you've got the first one. I do. And this relates to one of the other problems we were talking about earlier about head trauma, how are people, but it relates to a group of people that is growing is going to be a more and more difficult problem. And those are the patients who are anticoagulated. Now, this can be at several levels. They're on daily aspirin. Everybody knows about the one who's on Coumadin. But the one that's rearing its ugly head is Plavix. Plavix is the second most common prescribed pharmaceutical in the world, $6.6 billion in 2009. It's just behind Lipitor, which is the most commonly prescribed drug. And Rick, do you know the third most commonly prescribed drug in the world? Well, yes, I do, because I, I researched this. This is embarrassing. The third most commonly prescribed drug in the world is Nexium. Yes, it is. Well, it's not the most prescribed. It's just the most cash, the most profit. Okay, because I don't know what the number is. And maybe, isn't this the blue? No, I think this is still prescribed. The yeah, this yeah, is the yeah. little blue pill kind of thing. And one of the recurring themes in the literature 
over and over and over is people get put on this stuff often in the hospital to prevent stress ulcers and that kind of stuff. And they leave the hospital on this stuff and they never are taken off of this stuff. And that has resulted in it being the third biggest seller in the world because Everybody always on it because they forgot to get stop it. And again, you know, you won't get an ulcer. Well, just as an aside, I think that, that Plavix Clopidogrel has a very narrow group of people who should be on it. And the fact that it is making $6.6 billion in sales a year, probably the appropriate number for that would be less than a billion because a whole bunch of people on this for health benefits which don't exist it doesn't reduce mortality in acute coronary syndromes. It might reduce a few MIs. And there's a lot of people on for peripheral vascular disease where its efficacy there is really questionable. It's just amazing how you can sell a lot of product on the basis of some cool marketing, but not necessarily on the basis of efficacy. If you look at the data, the difference between people who are on an aspirin a day and Plavex a day, there may be 1% or 2% difference at the most and when you're actually looking at the number of complications, Plavex is probably 10 times more devastating with its side effects than aspirin. It's very strange what we've fallen into with this drug. Having said that, the real issues in anybody who's anticoagulated are they come in with a little trauma. Do they routinely get a CT scan? Do you repeat the CT scan? Because obviously you're going to be dealing with a group of patients who are old by definition, have other medical problems or they wouldn't be on the anticoagulant? Do they need to be observed? And really, does routine measuring of the INR actually change what you're going to do? I mean, does somebody with a 2.1 INR have a better outcome than somebody with 3.6? And all of these questions have been asked. The final story isn't in. Let's take an article that looked at, and this is one, Kane's article from the Journal of Trauma. Parenthetically, I am getting more and more enamored of the Journal of Trauma. I think they're asking a lot of good questions. And, you know, we're like all emergency docs, and we make fun of the surgeons occasionally. But I'll tell you, the Journal of Trauma is turning out better and better stuff. This is an article from April 2010, so this is pretty much hot off the press. It's a Spanish article, and they ask the questions here, what's the value of sequential CT scanning in anticoagulated patients suffering from minor head trauma? Well, very good question. And if you look at what they did, they had patients whose average age was 76 with an average INR of 3.8. Almost all of these were what happens to old people that are falls. These are not people from auto trauma. Those are 29 and drunk. This is people who have fallen at home, and the mean interval from injury to CT scanning was 3.2 hours. Now, that may be a longer interval than what we're used to. The real question is, let's say you scan them in 20 minutes or 30 minutes. Is there a difference? Well, the average here was 3.2 hours for the initial scan and 20 hours for the follow-up scan. And interestingly, anticoagulation was continued in all patients. When you sort of look at what they came up with, it concludes this. Routine performance of the follow-up CT scan did not appear to add much to anybody who was anticoagulated who had an initially normal CT scan and had normal examinations. And so looking at the anticoagulants and antiplatelet agents, all those sorts of things, if the patient had a sustained loss of consciousness, yeah, they may be at higher risk. The other group of patients didn't seem to do much. Rick? 
there were three out of 137 cases that had delayed bleeds. One of the other things in their protocol was scan, observe 24 hours. So I think they were all admitted to the hospital and then they scanned them again. And so three out of 137, all three of those patients were on both aspirin and warfarin. And we've done other papers in the abstract that basically show that the more anti-place agents you add, the more likely you are to bleed. And this is consistent here. Now, these guys make a conclusion that I'm not so sure their data supports, to tell you the truth. None right, of the, I know that. None of these people had surgery, which is cool, of the three. What did they conclude here, Gregory? Let me read this thing here. Patients with a normal CT scan following head trauma, with the possible exception of patients treated with both anticoagulants and antiplatelet drugs, and those sustaining loss of consciousness after injury, maybe those are the people. So they basically are taking three out of 137. They like the idea of routine performance of follow-up head scans, despite the fact that the yield was so low in the study. Well, I'm not sure that they like it. What they're saying is, I think, they're not making this a standard of care. What they're saying is, in a certain group of patients, two anticoagulants and a sustained loss of consciousness, this is who their three patients were, the three positive findings were in. I think right. we have to kind of draw a conclusion from that, that this would be their high-risk group of patients. I don't know how you can draw any other conclusion from this study. I find this study useful because it tells me a couple of things. One, it tells me that these people are at way higher risk of having an initial negative CT and then a positive one compared to the usual population not on anticoagulants. We know that that number, if you whack yourself on the head, have a negative CT and you are not coagulopathic, your chance of developing something later on is really low. So they're at much higher risk. But it's still a low risk, but it's not zero risk. And I think you just have to put that into your little computer algorithm. How many anticoagulants are there on? What do they look like? You can't just send them away and say your chance of bleeding into your head tomorrow is zero. It's not zero. One and a half percent is not zero. So I don't think you need to scan them all. But boy, these people should get followed up by somebody because there's a one in 70 chance that they're going to keep bleeding. Yeah. By the way, what was the intervention on these three patients? Nothing. Right, Rick? Right. What if the fourth one died from an intracranial bleed and could have been saved? So the study isn't big enough, right. but it certainly raises the issue that a subset of these patients, probably the most anticoagulated of these patients, are at risk. You'd need a much bigger study to work out how often you actually intervene. But I don't like any bleeding in the head. I don't like it. I'd like to know. Well, Greg here, one of the issues will be, have we evolved yet to a standard of care in these cases? My answer to that is no, we haven't. And the papers generally show that the vast majority of time we'll get away with it. One of the things that wasn't addressed here, Greg, is the mandatory performance of INR testing in people on warfarin who whack their head. What do you think about that? Well, we don't actually have a study that says that 3.4 is worse than 4.2. I'm not aware of that study that says that testing that number actually determines what we do with the patient. Let's say, for example, you had a 2.8 INR, and is that going to change how you handle this patient? 78 years old, fell down the stairs at home, was out for 10 minutes. Does that number change what you're going to do for this patient? I don't know that we have that study. Have you ever seen that one, Rick? You peruse the literature here more than any of us on this stuff. I've never seen it. Well, that number won't get me nervous, but seven will get me real nervous. And will you say, well, seven change what you do? And the answer is absolutely. That person's not going home. He's going to be observed by trained medical staff. It won't be the family. And he's going but to stay Rick, in the hospital. But what you're doing 
is you're projecting your own feelings on this. It's not like you're quoting me literature about this. Correct. But yeah, as long as we understand that, that you and I have a similar view of this. Does it make me upset? Yes, it does. And Grandma fell. Am I going to look at her again carefully? Yes, I am. The real question is, is there any intervention that we're going to take? You notice in this first article we did, they didn't change the anticoagulation in any of those people. That's really true. Yes, that is true. But I wonder what they would have done if the INR was seven or eight kind of thing. And the person was only on it for stroke prevention because they were in atrial fibrillation and they didn't have a heart valve. And they, then they crossed the international dateline. And, you know, it's like there's a lot of ifs here. But I think our goal is to state we don't really have a standard of care, I don't think, in this regard. But we should all be very, very wary of the risks. All right, let's take the next paper, which looked at time to deterioration of the elderly, anticoagulated, who suffer minor head injury and present without evidence of neurologic abnormality. This was from Cooperstown, New York. What they did was always a difficult study scientifically, and that is they did an implicit chart review in 32 patients age 65 or older. God, I wish they wouldn't. <laughs> I hate to include us in this, Rick. And on maintenance warfarin for more than six months, and their trauma had been classified as a minor head injury, and this covered a seven-year period of time. Three-quarters of these patients were discharged home from the ED, while eight were admitted. And the CT scanning was done in only three of those who are normal. Now, if you look at what they conclude happened, all eight of their admitted patients had an initial CT scan showing intracranial hemorrhage, four of whom developed neurologic deterioration, but they developed the neurological deterioration. Two were neurologically abnormal by the time they arrived in the ED. So I don't know how you count those. They had an abnormal neuro exam at the time they showed up, and the deterioration of the other two occurred within six hours. I mean, what it really seems to be saying is the deterioration, if it's going to take place, will be six hours from the incident. Is that how you read this, Rick? I didn't do an extensive review of our database. I just put in, you know, three or four papers that kind of make the case that these issues are problematic because this study only had 32 people. So it had no power to say much of anything in terms of, well, if we had 40 people, some of those might have deteriorated more than six hours out. But it's interesting that this paper at least shows that the majority of people who went home who were on anticoagulants, they never even scanned them. So if you're trying to make this the case that this is the standard of care, this paper will come to your rescue. They didn't scan these people. Let's do a little around-the-table discussion right now. Rick, how many of these people do you scan? They come in, they've had brief loss of consciousness, and they're on Coumadin. How many of them do you scan? 102%. And the fact of the matter is they don't need to have a brief loss of consciousness. Now, this is bad, Greg. This is bad. I understand. This is anecdotal, but I know of a case where this elderly gentleman was in a toy store with his grandson, and he was being dragged along by the grandson by the hand, and he stumbled, and he fell forward and hit his nose. He really hit his front of his face. And wouldn't you know it, this guy had one of these delayed bleeds kind of things. So it yep. wasn't even he got whacked on the head, he got whacked in the face for crying out loud. So the answer is, I'm going to get it on every one of them, and I'm also measuring an INR on every one of them. I don't want any surprises here. Melvis, 
Jump in. Unfortunately, I have the same anecdotal story as one of our nurse's mothers who tripped over, no loss of consciousness, same thing, kind of whacked her nose on Coumadin. I didn't do anything. She came back four weeks later with the largest subdural in the history of the world. So Good work. <laughs> yeah, thank yeah. you. <laughs> All right. If you don't like those first two papers, you're not going to like this one. The effects of clopidogrel on elderly traumatic brain injured patients. And I will cut to the chase. And this was done at the Queens Medical Center in Hawaii. So these may be hula lesions or something like that. I have no idea. It's a coconut falling it's on their head. It's a coconut. Could be a coconut injury. But when they looked at who did poorly and who went on to mortality, if you were on either aspirin or Coumadin, those people had mortality rates of about 1% who did bleed. If you were on Plavix, that group had significantly increased mortality. It wasn't in the 1%, 2% range. It was 14%. What they're basically saying in this paper is we've been concentrating pretty heavily on the Coumadin patients. Maybe we ought to take the Plavex patients a little more seriously and consider them in the exact same group as requiring pretty aggressive workup when they come into the department. I don't know what's worst, Plavex, Bledix, as we call it or a cumina, but what I've learned from these articles is it's bad enough to take out one part of the cascade, but in particular these patients where they're on Coumadin, Plavix, and aspirin, you're asking for trouble, baby. Yeah, exactly right. More than that, at some point in time, it must get more dangerous than the underlying disease itself. Well, we did a paper in the abstract, and it was in the last two months, that looked at bleeding complications on people taking one, two, or three of these agents and some people are taking all three of them, my God. But in any case, you know, once you hit two, you're pretty much getting asymptotic with the problems. And one of the issues here, too, is we never discuss what happens when oh, you got an INR of seven and you've got this whack on the head and you don't really have a really a compelling reason to be on this anticoagulant. Should you stop it? Should you reverse it? Those kinds of things. Well, as far as I know, we don't have any reversal agent for Plavix. And so that stuff is there for the life of those platelets, making them screwed up and screwed up pretty effectively. Yeah, the new AHA guidelines say you don't have to give these people platelet transfusions. That was sort of something that we did fairly aggressively at USC. So, oh my gosh, they got whacked on the head. Let's give them a six-pack of platelets or one plasmapheresis pack of platelets. The new guidelines say don't do that unless there's a good reason to do it. Gentlemen, we had to call this first problem to a halt and give a few take-home messages. Number one, Plavex is dangerous. Think about it. It should not be blown off. Number two... The more agents you're on, the more likely you are to bleed. Number three, whether it's an official standard of care at this moment or not, if you come in to see me and you've been hit on the head and you are anticoagulated, I probably am going to shoot a CT scan of you. You're almost always in that age range where the long-term effects of radiation are negligible. And you know what? I think it's easier to defend having done that. Let me ask one point then. What about routine INRs? Where do you stand? Well, if I know that they're on Coumadin, I get the INR. I no. do. Where do you stand? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we do far stupider tests that uh, mean <laughs> yes, nothing. That is exactly This is a test truth. of bleeding. If you're bleeding way too much, I mean, if your INR is 50, I'm going to fix it. So I'll actually do something with the result of this test, unlike most of the tests I get. Yeah. Unfortunately, what a lot of our listeners ought to know is that the way we fix these things is not immediate. I mean, giving vitamin K, that's what, a 24-hour 
kind of yeah, fix. Yes, but that's a whole other matter. I understand. I, this, this is about getting your butt sued because yes, you, I, you were negligent <laughs> in the care of this elderly patient who bumped her yeah. nose. Yeah, I'm not going to go into you know the yeah. new factor seven questions, but yeah. believe me, all the things that we thought were going to help us out on this stuff, fresh frozen plasma, blah, 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 you know what? Almost none of it's been proven to actually work. Melvis, you want us to do number two? Yeah, I'll keep this one pretty short. It's about C-spine fractures and spinal cord injuries and this kind of stuff. So here are the issues. If you've got a fracture in your spine, let's say you're minding your own business, Rick, and you're an elderly gentleman, and you fell over and you broke your neck. And I was smart enough to realize, hey, I think Rick's got a broken neck. And I get my x-rays and there it is. Sure enough, he's got a broken neck. One of the issues comes up is if you have one spinal fracture, particularly a C-spine fracture, what's the chance that you're going to have contiguous, like in the same area, or non-contiguous, outside the same area, fractures? And it's something that comes up all the time, not so much with the trip and fall mechanism, but much more with sort of an MVA-like mechanism. And in our place is something that we discuss a lot. So here's a paper that says, and it's from the Annals of Surgery, in January 2007, that's a retrospective look from a Toledo hospital of 129 trauma patients in whom, and this is important, C-spine injuries were diagnosed. So they were trauma patients, they had a C-spine injury, and then they asked the question, how often do they have an injury somewhere else? And the answer, and this is really the take-home point, that over 50% of the time these people had a fracture somewhere else. Now, a lot of the time that fracture was right nearby. It was a segment or two down from where you found the initial one. But about 20% of the time, it was in the thoracic spine or it was in the lumbar spine. So their conclusion from their data was, look, if you've got a C-spine injury in somebody with a trauma mechanism, just have a look at the rest of the spine because the mechanisms that produce fractures in one part of the spine will often result in fractures in another part of the spine at a different time. And I can tell you that that's basically what we do at USC on the basis of this study and some other studies. If you have a trauma mechanism and you have a C-spine fracture, I'm going to go looking for the other one. I don't always find it. This study says I'll find something you know, distant from that fracture about 20% of the time. Well, this is what the Nexus trial told us as well. Because I think it reviewing those, there were 39,000 patients, I think, in the Nexus trial. But bottom line was a third, one-third of the fractures were missed. Now, in all fairness, on plain film, which were picked up by the helical CT, the severity of those missed fractures, those that would go on to an involvement of the cervical cord, were relatively small. But the number bothers me when a third of them were missed on plain film, that should force you to think about the study of choice in these people, and I think it's a helical CT. Well, that's actually a separate issue is how right. you do that. Because basically at that point, you're screening. They've got a clinical fracture, and now if we agree, and there's a couple more papers here that suggest the same thing. There's a Chinese study here, and there's a pediatric study, which basically say the same thing. So here's a pediatric study by Mahan from September of 2009 in the Journal of Trauma. Same kind of thing, Children's Hospital of Boston, 195 patients with at least one spinal cord injury or spinal fracture. And then they go and look elsewhere. And again, about a third of the time, they find a second injury. So if we agree, once you find one injury, look for another injury, then the question is how you do that. I don't necessarily want to scan somebody from top to toe, but I think at the least you should do some screening with plain films of their thoracic and lumbar spine if you find a C-spine injury. You're going to give me a heart attack here, Mel. I think that the plain film with regard to the spinal column is a blunderbuss. Wait a minute. That's question number three. 
Don't drift off there, Gregory. Okay. <laughs> well, actually, I want to lead into it then because I think we would agree on the basis of this data for now. It's not all perfect data. I won't go Hoffman on it. That one injury suggests that there's another injury. And so then the question is how you screen for it. And so I think that leads into what Rick's going to talk about, whether that should be with CT or plain films. But before we get there, I think we should know there's a difference between there's a clinical suspicion, a high clinical suspicion, which is better, CT or plain films, versus doing some screening. Because there are two slightly different populations. So, Ricky, which is better, CT or plain films for clinical injuries? Well, before I get there, can I go back to your topic and say, well, you know, not all spinal fractures are the same. And we've seen elderly people who have compression fractures of their spine. Would that be the same thing in terms of triggering? I got to look at the thoracic spine. I got to look at the C-spine. Because, you know, you emphasize neck down, and I'm wondering about lumbar up. Is it the same? I don't really have any good data on that, but I just generally like the idea that if you've seen one, you got to at least consider whether there's another. And you don't have to necessarily x-ray them, but you got to feel their thoracic spine. you got to feel their neck and ask if they get any pain there. That's a reasonable thing to do, because if you had some force that broke a lumbar vertebrae, even though it was osteoporotic, well, you know, maybe the same force had some other problems further up. So I think that in terms of being careful and trying to do the best for your patient, that you ought to be aware, I got to check out the rest of the back. That doesn't mean I have to x-ray it if it's an elderly person with a lumbar spine, but I think you need to be aware of it. Yeah, actually, I think that's a beautiful nuance to that. I don't want to be recognized as a radical here, but my God, we might actually examine the patient. And if they're awake and talking to us and can give us the usual kinds of responses. You're right, Rick. You go ahead and you examine. Because they've got something stable in the neck doesn't mean we got to do something in the lumbar area, but at least examine the patient and do a neurological so that you know that you're not involving the cord somewhere along the way. I know these things are going out of style, but I think that the point from Mel's section here is a simple one. That is, if there's one, there's probably two. And another way you can do this, particularly if you pan scan the trauma patient just as a small subset, for some reason they were pretty banged up, you found an injury in their neck, you can just go back and reconstruct their spine from the other CTs. You don't have to CT them again. I often see them getting reordered. No, no, don't reorder. Just say, hey, guys, just reconstruct that spine. We can take a look at it. Yes, that's absolutely the case, and people should really know about that. The reason we pick these is because we don't want you to get into a position where your behavior is rightly criticized. And I think the first two points of these is the opportunity to have your behavior rightly criticized if you're not really aware of the issues here. Number three, and in fact, Greg, you did a lecture for the EMA courses about two years ago. And in fact, you wrote that and and it was entitled, Is the Plain X-Ray Dead? And that was the question. And the answer was, (laughs) yes, it is dead. Thank you very much. Well, wait a second. Everything depends on a concept in both law and medicine, is what is the acceptable miss rate? If your acceptable miss rate is 2% or 3%, well, don't do anything at all. If your acceptable miss rate is zero, well, (laughs) which the legal system seems to be pushing us towards, then I think you have to think about it. And I think the new helical CTs have less movement of the patient, can be done faster than five views of the neck. You know what? That's the way I think. Well, you know, The questions here are, are we evolving our standard of care? And it's really kind of interesting in that I talked to our head radiologist not too long ago, and he just kind of incidentally mentioned how many of our doctors were getting routine C-spine CTs, and that, in fact, 
the plain x-rays of the neck had basically gone away. Now, this was news to me, but the horse was out of the barn that this is what people are doing routinely. And I'm okay with it. The first paper that we talked about here is also from the Journal of Trauma, the May 2010 issue, and it's entitled Frequent CT Scanning Due to Incomplete Three-View X-rays of the Cervical Spine. This is a Dutch study, and number one, they used the nexus criteria to clinically stratify people. This says you don't need any imaging. You either need imaging or you don't need imaging, and using the nexus criteria or the Canadian criteria, basically you said no, yes. Now the next question well, that's is, what we pointed out two years ago, which is 70% or 80% of people need nothing. Right. And you have to have the intestinal fortitude to make that judgment. And unfortunately, there are so many physicians in emergency medicine, I believe, who don't use these guidelines. They think they're covering their butt. Let's get it anyway. They come in in a seat collar. They're in a spine board. They don't want to take the time. I just go send them for an x-ray. And I think that that is wrong, obviously. It's wrong. So if you do this dichotomy that says, I'm going to screen yes or no, you need an x-ray or an imaging study. And the answer is, yes, you do qualify for an imaging study. The question is, what study should you do? So this paper looked at, you know, a whole bunch of 1,283 adult blunt trauma patients with a potential C-spine injury. They applied the nexus criteria to them. And interestingly, and a little distressingly, the nexus criteria only took out one out of eight people in terms of you don't need an x-ray. So these people must have been really banged up. I would think the nexus criteria would get rid of 90% of people. Rick, I don't know where they got their patient population because in the patient population that I saw, it would be 80 or 90%. I don't know who these people are. Well, they're Dutch. You know, they're kind of hard-headed people. You know, they drink a lot. Yeah. Everybody knows that Dutch have got problems. Yeah, but, there's nothing less than a 17-and-a-half-inch neck in the entire country. Yeah. That, that's probably true. And those are the girls, so go ahead. We're gonna, don't write any emails. Don't bother. Don't bother. We're going to ignore yeah, this. Yeah, right. So in this study, a third of the cases where they x-rayed the people with plain films, they were either inadequate or unavaluable. A third of the cases? Well, Wait a second. That's the exact same number that the Nexus trial found. And then when they looked at how many C-spine x-rays that you missed, seven of 240 people had a C-spine fracture that was in the subset of unevaluable x-rays, and 60 of the almost 400 people. So they wound up with about 7% of the people having fractures. Now, is that the, consistent with the numbers in Nexus, 7%? Oh, Men no. That's way too many. Oh, is it? Well, that's maybe these Dutch guys. I'll tell you, this is a different group of patients than the ones we get. So I don't want to go through all of these papers. Look at the title. This paper came out in June 2007, again in the Journal of Trauma. The title is Prospective, catch that, Prospective Evaluation of Multi-Slice CT versus Plain X-rays in Trauma Cases. These findings do not support the use of plain X-rays to screen for CT, C-spine injuries in trauma patients is the conclusion of this paper. The sensitivity of a plain X-ray was 45%. Missed half the fractures. The sensitivity of a CT was obviously 100% because that defines a fracture. But the fact is you cannot afford to be missing. These are not potentially minor cases. And so next paper is entitled Spiral CT for the Initial Evaluation of Spinal Trauma, a New Standard of Care, question mark. That got into your topic. Yes, and, it did. And the last paper was the inefficiency of plain radiography to evaluate the cervical spine after blunt trauma. University of Pennsylvania, retrospective review, 640 patients had plain and CT x-rays. 
And only six of 19 fractures were identified on plain x-ray. Six of 19, please. That means the sensitivity was 35%. You always have to look to see who's reading the films. Is this done by the second-year resident in the department? And here's the real problem, that if you look at the patient population who's most at risk, all of us can read the 19-year-old kid's C-spine film. What if they're 80 and they've got a sclerotic neck and they're this, that, or another thing? I tell you, C-spine A is not C-spine B. Some of them can be more difficult to read, and to me... I don't think there's a debate anymore. Yeah, you have to divide the patients. We've talked about this before, but divide them into different subsets. Young person, mechanism not so bad, but you can't clear them with nexus. I don't want to do a CT scan on that person. That's a lot of rotation. Plain films are probably going to be very useful in that group. They're easily done and I can see everything. Old person, unibray, they're useless. You've got to scan those people. It's a waste of your time trying to get plain films. You know, one of these papers here, let me see which one it was. This is the one that says, is spiral CT a new standard of care? They said the costs for the CT versus the cost for a plain x-ray, $164 versus $172. The charges, however, were $4,400 versus $513, which is absurd. That's an American healthcare system problem. All economists deal with cost, not charge. Right. So basically we're saying that machine is paid paid for after the first three months it was in the building kind of thing. And these charges are ridiculous. But one of the more important parts was, and somebody brought it up, the radiation. They said a plain C-spine x-ray was 30 millisieverts and a scan was 39 millisieverts. Well, you know, I know nothing about that in terms of these equivalencies, but this paper would say you're not really giving them substantially more radiation, which doesn't really make a lot of sense to me, but you know, that's what the paper said. Yeah, that's interesting. And in fact, my uncle is a professor of radiology and he was just in town and he was saying that, and this is a whole nother discussion we probably shouldn't get into, that there is a bunch of hysteria about this radiation and new techniques and stuff they use. Yeah, the incremental increase in CT scanning radiation versus plain films is just not as much as we've been led to believe. So if that number was true, and I don't know, 30 versus 39 then that would change the way I think about this a lot. Because I thought it was supposed to be the old literature was saying it was five times more. Well, all I can say is this. If they're elderly, I don't care whether the radiation is actually five times more because the chances they're going to live another 20 or 30 years they have thyroid cancer are real small. If you're now dealing with a seven-year-old, now you've raised a different issue. So these old people, light them up. Light them up. Exactly. Make them glow in the dark. Yeah. Yeah, get the answer you want, because the last thing you want is one of them who now can't move from the arms down. That would not be good. Well, this third question, I think, is frankly of the three the most difficult because it deals with a moving target with regard to the standard of care. And I'm afraid, frankly, that the preponderance of the literature says that you will not pick up enough C-spine x-rays by plain films any longer when you have this other modality available. And I just think you can't ignore that. You can't ignore that. And so there will be standard of care issues and lawsuits generated by this concept. When we reviewed that literature two years ago, there was one thing that stuck out. The British believe that too. They're the cheapest people in the world. They do nothing unless there's some benefit from it. And you understand they're not a charge crowd. They're only a cost crowd. And they said it's cost efficient. 
when they looked at everything, how much tech time was involved, movement time, all this other kind of stuff, even they said the CT scan, helical CT, was much better than shooting plain films. Again, it was great seeing everybody at the ASAP meeting this year in Las Vegas. If I get any more hassling about wine of the month, we're going to start doing beer of the month, and it's going to be run by Mel. But again, I know there's this movement to have rot gut stuff for two bucks a bottle. I want to recommend something today, however, which came as a huge pleasant surprise. That's the Zenith Vineyard. It's in Oregon, 2008, the Pinot Noir State. Will you pay 24 25 bucks a bottle? Yes. Does Parker think it's in the upper brackets, a 91 rating, and basically says value for money? If you're going to give somebody a gift, if you want to take your wife out to dinner, this kind of thing, this Zenith is the one to buy. All right, guys. Well, that's December issue of Risk Management Monthly. And we will talk to you next month. Bye for now.